0: You are listening to the Sermon Podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning, everyone. As you mentioned, I'm James Swanson. I'm a covenant member here at Connection, gospel community leader. What else can I tell you? Uh, husband of my wife Tony for 33 years, father of eight, uh, four by biologically, two by adoption, two by marriage, um, grandfather to one, and uh, get to be a servant of God's word this morning. And so, can I open our time with prayer? Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning, and, and we're just thankful for the freedom to gather here we thank you for your word we thank you for the blessing of it and i pray that you would use your word through my mouth to uh, encourage our hearts to transform our lives and i pray that that what i speak would be in line with what you say and what you've delivered through Nehemiah and the rest of your scriptures, and and what I speak, that's not just cause it to fall to the ground. And I thank and praise you for your presence here with us. Now, present yourself through your word, in Jesus' name. We pray, Amen. Well, we've been walking through Ezra and Nehemiah the past several weeks, and today we get to come to Nehemiah nine, and and the question that uh, are questions that we've been asking ourselves as we've gone through these is, is what area of your life do you need or want spiritual renewal? Where do you feel the most dead inside? Uh, Where do you feel the least spiritual vitality? Where do you feel the coldest? And, or where do you feel the most discontent? In Nehemiah is going to, it takes place after the walls of the city have been rebuilt, and what the people are realizing is they need to rebuild their lives around God's ways through his word. And it's interesting, just from my own heart, um, when Jonathan asked that first week, where do you need spiritual renewal in your life, my marriage came to my mind right away. And, um, and God has worked in amazing ways just in that area. Um, I would describe our marriage as, and I like how John Piper has put it in the past, rock solid. But that's not always the best way to describe a loving relationship, is it? That it's like you don't like to hug rocks and, or snuggle up to them. Um, but my prayer was that, that our marriage would become a garden it's tended to and that I would lead in that. And God has used Ezra and Nehemiah in our marriage specifically to bring about renewal. And, and I would like to say it's because I've come home with roses every week and, and just you know poured out this romantic... Uh, essence to my wife, but it's actually come through difficult circumstances and trials and and just the the realities of um, being parents and and being in this world that has pressed us in together. And it has brought us uh, a vibrancy as we're going to look at today through confession, through prayer. And so I just want to start out our time uh, to invite you into Nehemiah 9, because I've had the blessing of studying it for several weeks now and preaching it to myself. And now I'm going to invite you into experiencing the power of God's word. And and so I'm just so thankful for that. So let's look at Nehemiah 9. And I'm going to read the whole chapter. So it takes 9 minutes depending on how well I pronounce some of these words. And uh, so I would just ask you, it's an amazing chapter, and the first little bit sets the posture of the chapter, and then the rest of it is an amazing prayer. And I want you, as we read through this, to notice what the focus of the prayer is, okay? And who is the focus of the prayer? And may that keep you drawn into to Nehemiah 9. So let's look at it together. Now, on the 24th day this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. They stood up in their place and read the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Shirabiah, Bani, and Chanani, and they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Heshbaniah, Shirabiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, And Jethiah said, stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before him and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous." And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, and you heard their voice at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers, and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in a the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night to light their, for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and stood with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath. Commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock from their for their thirst. And you told them to go in and possess the land that you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and would not and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Even when they made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. You, in your great mercies, did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of the cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them. In the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples, and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Shihon, King of Heshbon, and the land of Og, King of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven. You brought them into the land that you told them, told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, "'olive orchards and fruit trees in abundance, "'so that they ate and were filled and became fat "'and delighted themselves in your great goodness. "'Nevertheless, they were disobedient "'and rebelled against you "'and cast your law behind their back "'and killed your prophets "'who warned them in order to turn them back to you, "'and they committed great blasphemies.' Therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies, who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you, and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors, who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you. And you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies, so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules. Which is, if a person does them, he shall live by them, And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets. Yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hands of the people of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them. For you are a gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore... Our God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us. For you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom and amidst your great goodness that you gave them, and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves, and its rich yield goes to kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Because of this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. What a chapter, huh? And as we look at this chapter, uh, it puts on display how powerfully the renewal that we want or need can come through humble confession being transparent before God. And as we look at this chapter as I shared earlier it begins with the context here is is that it's coming right after the feast of booths. And so as we as Jonathan shared last week chapter 8 the feast of booths is a celebration. And these people are now gathering after this, a day or two later, and it's basically the people who've stuck around after the feast. And um, it's a time of gathering around God's word and confession. And you can see here the physical posture of these people. They come after a time of feasting, or fasting, I'm sorry, and their posture is one of mourning and a focus on their, the devastation of their sin. And they've even separated themselves from the non-Jews to engage God as his distinct chosen people. And notice here again, as we've seen previously in Nehemiah, that they are both confessing their individual sins and their corporate sins. As they have participated in the sins of their unbelieving neighbors. And so as we look at this first, Fifteen verses or so, what I want you to see is that a lingering focused reflection through God's word and confession produces a deep renewal because of who God is and what he's done for us. And that's a challenge for us, isn't it? To linger anywhere, right, in our culture. And even to have this posture of Reflecting on something for an extended period of time. But don't miss what this posture produces. And even the uniformity in which they come, which includes fasting, which includes sackcloth, and they put dirt on their heads. <clears throat> it's an intentional pursuit and posture of lowliness, of poverty, of humility. And <clears throat> they've basically said, we're not going to eat. And we're going to put on the simplest, most uncomfortable, itchy clothes possible. And we're going to put dirt on our heads because we know that that's the substance from which we come from, we're made from, from God. And it's also the substance that we're going to return in death to. And death is in the world because of sin. And so you think about, yeah, what kind of turnout would we had have had here at Connection if that's what was to happen in order to participate in the worship gathering this morning, right? Don't eat, come dressed in itchy, uncomfortable clothes and put dirt on your head. Right? Not a real attractive way to to enter in. We've got coffee, we've got comfortable seats. Um, those are all blessings. But you can see what the people were pursuing, right? And they spent six hours together reading and applying God's word. I'm, <clears throat> the fir- I'm sorry, three hours. The first three hours was reading and applying God's word. The next three hours was spent in confession and praising God. <clears throat> and so what was motivating that type of gathering? They needed to clearly see and confess the ways that they had become like the pagan nations around them. That they were not living as God's chosen people. Which, look at what happens as a result of this. <clears throat> First, don't miss the powerful effect of time in God's word by what it produces in his people. We remind each other of how frequently we open God's word, right? And how we pray that through opening God's word that it will supernaturally open us. Well, they spent three hours in it. And what happened? Their hearts were opened up. Their hearts are opened up like the psalmist talks about in Psalm 119. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. How does a young man or young person keep his way pure? By living according to your word. So it wasn't just some rote task that they gathered for three hours and read through the the scriptures. They were reflecting on it. They were applying it to their lives because you can see it in the outpouring of the next three hours and how reflecting on God's work word in their present circumstances leads to, him to three hours of conviction, of confession and worship of God. In verse 5 the leaders say stand up bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting blessing be, blessed be your glorious name which is exalted above all blessing and praise don't miss the connection here between what happens in verse 3, the conviction and confession of sin that produces the praise to God. It's a catalyst of this loud voice being raised in joy to God. It's renewal occurring in their hearts. And as we see the same thing in, in Psalm 51's example of this, how David seamlessly moves from deep conviction and confession of sin to praising God. Praising the God who has shown him the depth of his own sin and and the nature of his sin and most importantly knows that God will cleanse and forgive his sin and renews his heart's desire to praise the Lord. Psalm 51. Wash me, Thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before you. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words. Blameless in your judgment. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me with a willing spirit. My tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Do you see it? David is moving seamlessly from confession, conviction to praise and glory to God. Now, I don't know about you, I don't naturally connect those things. I tend to separate them. But we're having demonstrated before us the connection Between them, and how necessary confession is to renewal in our lives. And then in verse 6, the author rolls out this prayer, and it goes all the way through verse 38. And he begins in Genesis 1 with creation about who God is and what He's done for them and their people in the past. And the prayer takes him up to the present day situation in verse 38. And please take hold of how God is the focus of this prayer. Once again, in Nehemiah. In this chapter, God and references to God occur over 80 times. You talk about God centered prayer, and what a model it is for us of who God is and their belief in that and how much he has cared for them, that it just spews forth in their prayer, God did this, God did this, God was this. And it fueled their confession. And the beauty of this prayer is that it actually reflects our story, doesn't it? And how we interact with God, how we need God While the time period and the geography is different, God has not changed, and our need for his mercy, love, and faithfulness also hasn't changed, has it? This prayer flows from their communion with God through his word. It even tells what happened to them when they disconnected their lives from his living word, which is our story. Our level of connection to God's word has a direct correlation to our awareness for our need for God. Our connection with the God of the Bible has a direct correlation to our awareness of our own sinfulness in light of how holy God is that we see in his word. And our awareness of our need for his mercy, his faithfulness, his righteousness, his love through faith in Jesus Christ. And look at what they declare about God beginning in verse 6. Because it's also true this morning for us. We gathered together to declare these same things about God. You are the creator and preserver of all things. You chose Abram and, blessed, and promised to bless the nations through his faithfulness. You kept your promises and are faithful. You see our affliction, hear our cries, perform signs and wonders to deliver and lead your people. And then in verse 10, Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land, for you knew that they had acted arrogantly against our fathers. See, God knows the proud. And they're his enemies. He destroys them. But then he also shows that he has given us his word. The daily food and water that sustains our lives. So that we can possess the promised land. In what ways has your life experienced God's mercy and goodness? and deliverance. When has the Lord been your pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire at night? How many days have you not wanted to even get out of bed, yet God supplied your spiritual bread, enough bread to sustain you, through another difficult day. As I thought about this, I've been struggling with sleep- sleeplessness the last couple months. And um, when I read about the pillar of fire by night, I've had some of the sweetest times with God and experiences His sovereignty in the middle of the night. When I can't sleep, there's a God who never sleeps. And he meets me in that time, and he directs my heart in prayer, and he exposes amazing things that renew my heart. And he actually gets me through the next day, even though I got like half the sleep that I had hoped to. That's our God. And also, as you think about your life, what enemy or powerful force has threatened your spiritual life recently? It doesn't have to be a big threat like an addiction to a substance or an addiction to a screen or a seductive passion that consumes too much time and energy or resources in your life. It might be your anger towards your job's demands. It might be bitterness towards a family member or another relationship in your life. It's robbing you, of of, it consumes your thoughts and robs you of being present with the person that God has placed right in front of you at that present moment. Oh, friends, how much good some lingering focused reflection time on your story through God's word would produce a profound renewal and an incredible evidence of God's power, God's promise keeping faithfulness and goodness to you, And the people of Nehemiah's day didn't have what we have now. They didn't have that yet. They they didn't have Jesus. And we have Jesus. What a gift. And humble, transparent confession may point you back to Jesus. Jesus as your creator, your preserver, your deliverer, your protector, your promise fulfiller. Your righteousness, your affliction bearer, your enemy destroyer, your lawgiver, your bread of heaven, your living water. We've been given and possess all spiritual blessings in Jesus, and we see it in this text. And the grace that comes to us through humbly confessing those things and the attitudes that we have that reveal our own self-reliance, our own self-protection, and the list goes on, what more do we really need? Where do we need to believe that we need more than Christ? Because that may be the very place that your confession needs to start in order to bring the renewal that is waiting for you from God. And then in verses 16 to 31, we can see why the Israelites spent so much time confessing their sins and their father's sins. And I want to try and help us see the author's rhythm here. Describing God's mercy, compassion, and patience in response to the people's rebellion, their pride, their disobedience, because that's our story, isn't it? if we were to write an autobiography of our life or or if we were to post on social media honestly what goes on in our life, the truth of our bad days and our stubborn ways, this is it. What I want us to see is we experience the reviving power of God's great mercy, compassion, and patience as we confess our need for him To regularly rescue us from our great presumptuous, stiff necked, and unbelieving ways. That's the language that's used here. In verse 16, we are just like the Israelites, acting presumptuously. Another way to say that is acting proudly, acting rebelliously, stiffening our necks. Look at verse 17. Refusing to obey, stiff-necked, rejecting God's appointed leader. As I reflected on that, how many times do we appoint ourselves as our own leaders? And it takes us right back into slavery. But, verse 17, we have God ready to forgive graciously and mercifully, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, Who does not forsake us. Verse 18, (laughs) committing great blasphemies. Another way to say blasphemies there would be unbelief that leads to sin, unbelief that leads to rebellious action, great heart idolatry. And then, even when we do such things, verse 19, You and your great mercies do not forsake us. (laughs) What did his mercies look like for them in the wilderness? The cloud pillar that led them by day. The fire pillar that led them by night. He gave them his good spirit to instruct them. Gave them manna for food and water for their thirst. 40 years of life-sustaining divine provision in a place that was not going to give them anything good. It was a wilderness. And some of us are in a wilderness today, aren't we? The wilderness of loneliness. The wilderness of rejection. The wilderness of shame. The wilderness of addiction. It's a dry and exhausting land. But because of a good and merciful God, they lacked nothing. Even their clothes and their sandals were sustained. So right in the middle of this rhythm, what does the author emphasize in verses 20 to 25? (laughs) He emphasizes God's merciful gift for them to possess land, to fruitfully multiply with many children and conquer cities, They gain rich land, richly furnished houses, complete with water systems, vineyards, fruit trees in abundance. So much abundance that the people are described as eating to their fill. Becoming fat, delighting themselves in what? God's great goodness. You'd think that was enough for them, right? But then the pattern continues in reverse order. With the people in verse 26 again committing great blasphemies and and God responding in verse 27 with great mercies to give them saviors to rescue them. When we went through the book of Judges, we saw this. Deborah, Gideon, Samson, God providing these saviors to deliver them. But what did they do on repeat? They did what was right in their own eyes, didn't they? And that's what he's describing here. And so, in verse 28, then they did evil again. And God delivered them many times according to his mercy. Then verses 29 and 30, God warned them many times Many times, yet, they acted presumptuously rebelling against God and his goodness. Are we any different today? I don't know about you, but every morning when I get up, the battle begins. The battle between my own heart's idols, the kingdom of James, and the kingdom of God. Am I going to act presumptuously and rebelliously? Or am I going to recognize that great is God's faithfulness? And I've got a whole new set of mercies that morning from him to step into. We tend to cast his truth behind our backs. To act as if God's word, his prophet's word are dead to us. And we silence them with our sin. And when we're comfortable and experiencing ease, we return to our sinful ways, acting pridefully. And our sinful ways take dominion over us, turning a stubborn shoulder, not giving ear to obey. It's us, isn't it? It describes us. But then I love this word in verse 31, Nevertheless. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them (laughs) or forsake them. Why? Because you are a gracious and merciful God. Just how merciful and gracious has God been to you in your short time on earth? Because we're getting it described on repeat in this chapter. Over lots of decades, how many times in the last week did God meet you in the midst of your pride, in the midst of your stubborn ways, acting proudly against his promptings in your life? And you were met with his mercy, right? <laughs> Not making an end of you, so to speak. And I think about God's mercy In my own life. And one specific instance comes to my mind. When I was 16 years old, um, and I grew up in Illinois, at 16 you could get your driver's license. There's a lot of wisdom in that, South Dakotans. And so we had a brand new Suburban. It was actually my dad's company, Suburban. And um, I had the amazing opportunity to drive my mom and my six younger siblings to the dentist one day. And so... We're just having a great time driving together. And um, as a young driver, I, I, I was just enjoying the day, talking to my mom. And uh, we were nearing the dentist office, and we were coming to a spot. I, I remember this like it was yesterday. A couple kids are on the sidewalk. I wave to them. Well, as I'm waving to them, I miss the sign that says, Cross traffic does not stop at the coming intersection. So I stop at the stop sign, and I pull out right in front of another car, right into the side of our Suburban. Tears off the running boards, you know, dented it pretty good, but it paled in comparison to the poor gal in the Omni Horizon, or Plymouth Horizon, which is like a, a Ford Fiesta. <clears throat> and immediately I thought, you know, everybody's okay, praise God, but I'm dead. Because my dad is going to kill me. And new suburban, um, and being a teenage driver, my dad was good to give those warnings that, hey, if you speed, I get your license. Things like that, just uh, to give me the fear of, of not being 16 with car keys. And so, uh, I, I was weeping. And, and it, was, it, it was bad. Like, I was just completely in tears. The police officer felt so bad for me, he didn't give me a ticket. He said, you're suffering enough. You're, you're experiencing the consequences enough for this. And he was merciful. And I don't even remember if we went to the dentist or not. Um, but I do remember returning home where my father was. And pulling in the driveway, I'm sure my mom drove home. But, and just coming up to the front steps, and my dad coming out to meet me. And I was scared to death. I just like, I'm guilty. I, I, I'm dead. Um, here, take my license. And, and my father came out, and he's it's like, James, are you Okay. I'm so glad that the family wasn't hurt. They can't be replaced. The suburban can be fixed. And you have to understand that my dad grew up in inner city Chicago, tough. Um, for him to come out with mercy in that situation, like that's why I was so afraid. I thought he was going to come out, and, and he had every right to be upset at me. But as we were standing there on the front porch and as he's talking to me, loving me with his mercy, and the suburban sitting right there, the mess I had made, but yet I experienced the Father's mercy in the midst of my own destruction. And that's part of what we're to see here is that we have a Father who is merciful, who comes to us, and he's pleased to multiply his mercy upon us as fallen, broken, messy people. And I love how Dane Ortman puts it in his Ortland, in his book Gentle and Lowly, the, the chapter called Father of Mercies. He writes this, and think about this in terms of your own life and how you view God's mercy. As you consider the Father's heart for you, remember that he is the Father of mercies. He is not cautious in his tenderness towards you. He multiplies mercies matched to your every need. There's nothing he would rather do. And the Puritan John Flavel writes, Remember that this God is in whose hand are all creatures, is your Father. And much more tender of you than you are or can be of yourself. Your gentlest treatment of yourself is less gentle than the way your Heavenly Father handles you. His tenderness towards you outstrips what you are even capable of towards yourself. And it's all mercy. And if you believe that mercy... You won't resist confession. You'll run to him because you know what you're going to receive. And it's all mercy that he gives his good spirit that lives in us to instruct us, to provide us with satisfying spiritual food, the living water of his word. He has provided mercifully for us just like his wilderness wandering people in the first exodus. Now for us, it's all God's sufficient grace that we lack nothing. We are clothed by faith in Christ's robe of righteousness that lasts forever. Our feet will safely travel the narrow, difficult road that leads to our eternal promised land. And in verse 22, I love this, when God gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. Our story is even greater. Jesus says in Matthew 16, 18 and 19, when he's speaking here, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, every single corner. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Do you believe that in Christ we have been given the keys of his kingdom? Not even the gates of hell will prevail against us. Jesus has subdued Satan and his enemies. He's a vanquished foe. So when we gather together in gospel communities, when we gather on a Sunday morning like that, we gather as a people that are free to confess. Satan has been defeated. Jesus is our victorious king. In every corner of the earth, Jesus declares a mine. And so we get to go into the world as his ambassadors doing the same. And what it declares in verse 25 gets expanded for us in this present church age because we know how the story ends in Revelation 22. Our future promised land and eternal home, (laughs) where it talks about in this chapter, already hewn wells, already dug wells, will be replaced with the river of the water of life the brightest crystal flowing water from the throne of God and of the Lamb, the better abundant fruit trees, the tree of life with the 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruits forever, and its leaves bringing healing to all the nations. We trust God to deliver us into that revelation glory. We experience a reviving power of God's great mercy, compassion, and our presumptuous sins and our need to confess them on a regular basis so that we can be rescued and renewed. Then finally, we cry out in our sin and our distress when we believe that God is good and will deliver us as he has promised. In verses 32 to 38, this is a, the section of prayer, is one of adoration and confession And it ends with a recommitment to obey God's law. And you see the adoration there, don't you? As he declares God is great, mighty, awesome, covenant-keeping, steadfast, loving, righteous, faithful to punish their evil, and gives great goodness and generosity. And then confession, because they've acted wickedly, disregarding God's commandments and warnings. And God's goodness or generosity... They've rejected it. Rather, they've served themselves and lived sinfully and became slaves in distress. See, the walls of their cities may have been rebuilt to protect them from the enemies outside, but they still needed to confess their spiritual enemies that they had brought into their hearts through living without spiritual walls to rightly protect them and their hearts from the idols of the culture around them. And those idols have become their masters. And what a great and mighty and awesome promise-keeping Father that we have. And we can praise him for how generously he has poured out those characteristics upon us as his children. We are no longer slaves to our sin or the sin of others against us. There is sin. This sin is not too little to God, as you see in verse 32. I love that that phrase, not too little to him. Don't miss the essence of his prayer of confession. He's confessing in verse 33 that they have acted wickedly and God has been righteous. Verse 34, our kings, princes, priests, fathers, have not kept your law or paid attention to God's word. Verse 36, behold, we are slaves this day. Their present condition. In the land you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and good gifts. We are in great distress. His prayer is motivated by a longing for renewal. To no longer be stressed out slaves because they've forsaken God and his good gifts and have joined the idolatry of the unbelievers around them. And as I thought about this, these questions came to my mind, and I want to ask them of you today. What are you distressed about presently? What's most distressing to you in your life right now? What circumstances do you long to be freed from? How would you complete this statement my life would be better if blank was removed what would you put in that blank is it something financial is it something relational is it something vocational is it an addiction is it a health issue it could be anything What you place in that blank may very well be your master. Have you confessed your distress? Or has it become a master of your thoughts, your emotions, your decisions, and your words? You see, confession is a powerful, renewing force in our lives. And it frees us from the enslaving power of sin. And we know that it is not little to our God. And we see it in 1 John 1, verses 7 and 9. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all our sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we cry out in our sin and agree with God that sin is not little to him, his response to our confession opens the doors of his goodness and his mercy to wash away our sin, to cleanse us. We confess our sin not simply because we're grieved by it, but because we long for Jesus to walk in the light of his goodness, to walk in the light of his cleansing mercy and his eternal promises. Do you believe that through confession of sin that a better word has been spoken over you by your Father in heaven through Jesus Christ, that he has spoken that you're mine? Those sins are not little to him because his own son He sent us to to us to free us from the enslaving power and every sin committed against us. He sent his son out of his great goodness to save us from our wicked words and actions or the wicked words and actions of others against us. That's great news. And it frees us from our self-serving, self-worshiping kingdom, delivering us into his everlasting kingdom for the rest of our lives into eternity. And the chapter ends with his people in verse 38. Because of all this, this mess of sin, they make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document with their names on it. With their covenant, will their covenant last? Because of their own ability to keep it? No. Their kings, princes, priests, Fathers all failed. But, verse 32, what do we have? We have our God. The great, the mighty, the awesome God who keeps his covenant in steadfast love. We have Jesus who kept the covenant that we cannot keep, that they could not keep. And it's sealed with his own blood. And then he rose from the dead to conquer the enslaving power of sin. He reigns on the throne of heaven as king of kings, as the prince of peace, the great high priest, the everlasting father, the true and eternal prophet. Jesus rightly rules over our lives and his good spirit empowers us to yield good fruit. He's delivered and is delivering it and will deliver us From our great distress into his eternal rest. Because we are sealed by his spirit. With our names written in his book. His covenant is sure to be fully, perfectly, eternally realized. So we can be renewed daily. Through the light of his glory and his grace. I want to close us this time in prayer. And what I want to do is just to, to do you, for you to have a moment to confess whatever it is that's distressing you right now. Let this be the primer that leads to greater and deeper confession and renewal. Where is it that you want renewal? I'm going to give you a moment here just to pray, and then I will pray in closing. Father in heaven, we declare you as God. You alone are God. And I thank and praise you that you know us full well, and that you've revealed yourself through your Son and your Scripture, and that we can come confidently before your throne of grace and confess our need for you, our sin our distress, our slavery. And that, Jesus, you free us. You are our deliverer. You are our redeemer. You are our savior. You are our everlasting rock. And may the words of our mouth and the meditations of our hearts confess that as long as we have breath. In Jesus' name, amen.